Hey everybody, uh, Pete here with a special episode. If you've been a listener for a while, you might notice that this is a reposted episode. Uh, it originally went up around eight months ago. Um, but the reason for that is the person that we interviewed for this particular episode was a guy named Rob Bruce. And unfortunately, he passed away about three weeks ago. Um, so I thought it would be nice to repost it, give anybody you know who hasn't heard it the opportunity to hear it. Rob was a friend of mine. I've known him for about 20 plus years. The long and the short of it is, you know, he used to own a store in Red Bank, New Jersey called The Groove Spot. Um, and I started going in there when I was, I don't know, 14, 15 years old, maybe. And The Groove Spot was an eccentric shop full of toys and records and, you know, memorabilia, games, video games, all kinds of things. But Rob was always a very supportive guy to me. He was always super nice, particularly when I was young. Turned me on to things where, you know, I'd tell him that I heard Black Sabbath. And he would say, yeah, okay, you've heard Sabbath. Have you heard Hawkwind? Have you heard Budgie? You know, he was just, he was that kind of difficult uh, record store owner type that we all think about, you know, kind of the caricature version of that. Um, but that being said, he was very supportive. He was very nice. I actually... Um, met up with them into my 20s, you know, at different points when I was considering, you know, different career choices and things like that. He would uh, meet up with me and talk me through things. So he was a polarizing figure. That being said, you know, living in and around the Monmouth County, New Jersey area for most of my life, I really couldn't go into towns like Red Bank without running into him. I mean, every time I saw him, he was super nice. We'd have a great conversation. Um, and then, you know, we'd move on and then maybe I'd see him at a flea market down the road. So Rob was a good guy. He will be missed. You know, I'm really, really glad that we got to do this episode with him. So hopefully you enjoy. Thanks. RIP Rob. This is In Search of Tracks podcast. This is the podcast where each week we take a deep dive into a different album and ultimately answer the burning question, are there tracks? But this week, we're not going to do that. This week, we have a special guest with us, um, and we're going to talk about pr primarily a record label um, and a certain era of New Jersey music. We're not going to talk about any album in particular, but I'm sure a lot of different albums are going to come up. Uh, today, we're talking about Mother Records with our special guest, Rob Bruce. Um, Rob is a very old friend of mine. He is more famously known uh, for being the creator of the NJ Horror Con. Um, he's also a producer and on-air expert in AMC's Comic Book Men, and he's done a ton of other things that I'm sure he can tell us about. But Rob, what's up? Thanks for coming on. Hey, hey Pete, how you doing? Local rumps and boys, right? <laughs> Local Rob, Robson th boy. Thank, thank you for joining us, man. Good to good to have yeah, you. Yeah, YouTube up. So, uh, you know, Rob, we were talking about Mother Records. Um, I run into you in Red Bank a lot. We end up talking about music, and uh, yeah. I mentioned I mentioned at, at the podcast, Jack's, no less, right? At Jack's, indeed. right? Jack's, good old Jack's music. It's been there since at least I was nine. I think it's the first time I went there. I must have been nine years old. So that's wow, 50, fifty years ago. You know, the, the great thing about Jack's is Jack owns it. 
Jack is like 80 something. Every time it snows, he's out there shoveling his own sidewalk. It's just the weirdest thing, but <laughs> I just gotta, going, still gotta love strong. that commitment. Yeah. I, I don't know if it's commitment or he's really, really cheap. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, he's out there, he, he's shoveling, you know, he owns the Char restaurant building, which is worth like $4 million. And he's out there shoveling the sidewalk. It's like, <laughs> what the fuck? And literally nobody else in town. It's just Jack shoveling just snow. It's amazing. Amazing. But, you know, Jack is a real important thing to uh, a record store as, as record stores go. It's always been a record store for those 50 some odd years. And, and when you look at the Jersey Shore, you know, what has lasted? It, one of those things is Jack's. You know, yeah. the other thing is like uh, the Brighton Bar. You know, I don't know if you guys have been the Brighton Bar or, or if your listeners are familiar with that part of uh, Jersey Long Branch. But the one thing you it's really noticeable about the Brighton bar is there's a wall with all the names of all the bands that have pretty much ever played there. I'm sure they're missing a couple, but you know, you've got famous, famous bands, you know, monster magnet and all the local bands. And and I'm always amazed going to Brighton because Brighton hasn't changed at all. And in my life, certainly in the 35, 40 years, you know, that you were legal to drink and go to see a band at a club. Right. Right. Um, and, you know, uh, one of the things we're going to talk about Mother Records is one of the co-owners of that bar is is Gregory from uh, Chronic Sick. And a lot of people don't know that, you know, <clears throat> when you talk about Mother Records, you talk about uh, that 80 to 83 uh, music scene that kind of emerged ahead of the uh, backlash of mm-hmm. punk rock. So punk rock is a New York City thing. And the Ramones take it to England and it becomes a UK thing. And then at some point it goes across the country because the Ramones are touring and all the other uh, satellite bands are touring, you know, the New York dials. We, we pretty predate them a little bit, but that whole genre sure. of music's sure. coming up and coming out. And, and it goes to California and then California kind of creates uh, hardcore, you know, mm-hmm. comes out of the West Coast with Black Flag and uh, uh, Dead Kennedys. And, uh, you know, comes back to the uh, East Coast and hits Washington. You get uh, Bad Brains and then comes back to New York and you get all the Cro-Mags and all those other bands kind of develop. But at that same period, there's this uh, subculture scene that's uh, growing on the Jersey Shore. uh, Pretty much due to Mother Records. You get you there? Yeah, we're here. We're here. You just blinked out for a second. Freaked me out. So, so mother, who was uh, Mark Chesney, who was a local Ocean Township, Asbury Park producer, you know, had the hindsight to start this label and would would pretty much produce the first five or 10 records were all hardcore records, you know, true to that that the genre no name bands local bands didn't play out a lot uh notably the worst on uh, chronic sick and public disturbance and fatal rage and uh, child abuse child abuse was uh at, based in belmar yeah. uh, russ inglay inglay who uh went on to be the bass player for murphy's law yeah. And then uh, reformed a band with his brother called Underdog, pretty famous local East Coast skate band, hardcore band. So all these bands. I didn't know like there was an Underdog connection there. Sorry. Oh, you didn't yeah, know that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Pretty that. big, actually. You know, no. uh, and that and they only did a single. They never did a record. 
Um, right. the, bring it single. Yeah. 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 It's an incredible single, you know? Right. And one thing they, they, you know, when you talk mother and you talk those first 10 records, you talk uh, very expensive, uh, highly yeah. sought after, mm-hmm. um, you know, cream of the crop considered to a lot of, uh, collectors of punk rock music. These are like the top records you can buy. You, you went on, on a website like Discogs or eBay and they yeah. had an original pressing of Chronic Sick. You're probably looking at paying twelve to $1,500 for that record. Yeah, it's crazy money. It's just one of those crazy ass fucking things. Yeah. That, you know, <laughs> and, 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 you know, I've owned probably uh, three to 4% of all the records that Mother River produced. You it's sold a me a records. You, you sold me Rob, you sold me and Bob a worst LP. You should yeah. Know. yeah, yeah, there you go. But yeah. you know, when I had the store, I always had Mother Records in it because I knew everybody, and I went you know up and down the fucking Monmouth County, Ocean County, and I just would knock on people's store and say, "Hey, you remember when we were kids and we were listening to the so and so? You mind if I buy all your records for fifty bucks?" And they always say, "Yeah, sure, sure." Uh, <laughs> but that's a racket. But, you know, I mean, it was a racket. It's still a racket. But yeah. you know, finding those records now has gotten harder and harder because the sophistication, you know. But but my thought on that is that like, you know Elvis records used to go for a thousand dollars. So in twenty years, that chronic sick records when they were ten bucks. So I'm waiting to rebuy them. But holding out, like, yeah. I like it. It's a good scheme. So with with that, so Mark kind of founds Mother because he sees that there's bands around locally that didn't have anywhere else to put out the records. Is that kind of the energy yeah. around it? And, and, you know, there was a scene. So the scene is like, and, and it was crazy because the scene locally, Monmouth County, Red Bank, Long Branch, you know, Fast Lanes, Asbury Park. We never played the Pony. You know, we played the little clubs. There was a club in Red Bank called uh, Big Man's West, which took over the space that was vacated by the Blue Diamond Pool Hall on Mama Street. And Big Man was uh, Clarence Clemens. So Clarence had this great idea of starting a local uh, club. He lived in, uh, if you don't know who Clarence Clemens was, he was the saxophone player in a, a band called the uh, fucking uh, E Street Band, I think they call themselves. <laughs> and they were like out of Asbury. But he lived in, in, in Seabright for years. And he had this great idea of starting this club. And, and the club was actually managed by a guy, a local guy by the name of uh, George McMorrow. So George had, had a lot of uh, hindsight and there would be like a Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, like punk rock night. And and George would bring in mother bands. So you could get you could go to a show and watch Fatal Rage and Chronic Sick and the worst play together, which, you, yeah. you know, if you think about history, this is only going to happen, you know, for two years. Right. You know, they, they, right. they would all reverse down at the hot dog house, which is a pretty famous uh, reversal studio on yep. Cookman Avenue. So you could always go down there and hang out and you know, smoke weed and do drugs. And, you know, cause it was a pretty big drug scene and, and, you know, listen to the, these guys practice. We always went to practices, you know, uh, probably more so than concerts actually, especially with the worst. Cause the worst was sort of like a, uh, a, uh, a brother band too. I worked uh, for a band called Shrapnel who uh, weren't on mother. They were on salute records.
they had the uh, audacity of having their their manager was Legs McNeil, okay. when Legs was the uh, original editor and, and co-founder of the magazine called Punk Magazine with John okay. Holmstrom, Roberta Bailey, um, and Legs, and probably a couple other people that I'm forgetting. So Legs actually managed Shrapnel and brought a lot of um, credibility to Shrapnel as a band. But Shrapnel was, was, was full of very talented musicians, uh, for, most notably uh, Daniel Rabinowitz, who later changed his name to Daniel Ray, and went on to uh, write uh, Pet Cemetery with uh, the Ramones, D.D. Ramone, and helped produce Pet Cemetery. And then he went on to uh, produce Mondo Bizarro and Brain Drain and a number of other uh, punk rock, uh, Ramones records. And then, you know, he became a pretty well-known uh, producer. And then the lead singer of uh, Shrapnel was um, Dave Windorf, who, yep. if anybody knows Dave Windorf, he founded uh, Monster Magnet. Monster Magnet went on to produce uh, nine records with Electra, traveled yeah. around the world 22 times, you know, <laughs> top uh, gold hit, top 10 record with... Uh, Space Lord, yep. I'm pretty sure that was top 10. Yeah. And then uh, Phil Cavano, who uh, was a bass player in Shrapnel, went on to be in a band called Blitzspear, and then later uh, was in Murphy's Law as the bass player, and then eventually ends up in uh, Monster Magnet with Dave as the rhythm guitarist. So th this group is in Red Bank, uh, Shrewsbury. They practice at Daniel's house in Shrewsbury. Um, Dave grew up and lived on Frockmorton uh, Street in Red Bank. Yeah. And a half a block away from Dave was Scott Ruth, who uh, was the lead singer in the band Tyrant. Now, Tyrant wasn't a, a mother band. They were, uh, Tyrant put out a comp on uh, Megaforce. Megaforce is famous for producing the first Metallica record. Yep. But there's a four-song comp, and I think Tortured Dogs on there, and maybe Hades, yeah. and uh, Tyrant. And Tyrant was a band with Scott Ruth, and then uh, Ronnie Acera, Ronnie Ace, lived up the street. Now, Ronnie was also in the band called, um, not Hades, Tyrant. What was the other fucking band? Shit. I knew <laughs> it was just going to happen. It'll come back to me. But they were actually a mother band, the other band that... Not Tyrant. Uh, fuck. Not the Beast. The Beast. That's it. Right. Uh, so the Beast uh, is, is is, is uh, uh, a mother band. I think they put out one seven inch, and yes. they were sort of a metal uh, Motorhead clone. But Scott mm -hmm. Roofs, who so was the singer in Tyrant, goes on and forms a band called uh, Ripping Corpse. Which yeah. if you're not familiar with Ripping Corpse, they were probably the first true thrash metal band and their lead guitarist, whose name I always forget, got taken away, got uh, like stolen by a Florida band called Morbid Angel. So without, <laughs> yeah. without this whole scene, yeah. there's no Morbid Angel. And I, I think know, the same, I think the same guy is in Cannibal Corpse now. Right. Yeah. 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 Wow. So it's this really weird, small world Late 79, it sort of all sort of kicks off. 80, 81, 82, Mother starts producing records. Those first 10 records, they're all monsters. They're just like, Mother had this sort of, he's very, he's a very sardonic uh, black humor kind of guy. 
And he always like looked at music on like sort of the darker side. So when he like, you know, uh, Chronic Sick puts out uh, the cutest band in rock and roll, you yeah. know, it, it's all about like not being cute. It's about being <laughs> ugly. And, and, and it's that hardcore, you know, early hardcore scene. It's so early that the first time that, you know, I remember a, a, a mosh pit, yeah, you know, slam dancing was at one of those uh, triple header shows at um, Big Man's West. That's the first time ever, you know, I think I always say this and people can argue and it's hard to, to find the, the real true pinpoint. But, you know, the CBGB scene hadn't flipped over yet. They're still, right. still in that no wave post power pop, uh, pop you know, uh, vibe. And yeah. that hardcore scene doesn't really emerge in New York City until like eight, late 82, 83, when uh, Black Flag comes uh, east and, you know, um, uh, what's what's her name? Fucking uh, Dead Kennedys come east. Mm-hmm. And some of those other bands, uh, the Germs. You know that whole. Yeah, they were definitely scene. behind. Definitely behind Boston and DC with the the hardcore Right, right, sound. definitely. Well, definitely behind DC, one hundred percent. Because I was down in DC in like eighty eighty one, and the bat, uh, Bad Brains were already playing out. Oh, wow. And uh, Boston was always crazy because Boston had a lot of clubs, and some of them were on like Com Ave. And then some of them were like five blocks off of Com Ave. Yeah. And all of the uh, hardcore shows were five blocks off. Because, you know, the closer <laughs> you got to like where the money was, the less accessible that, uh, you know, yeah. that uh, hardcore craziness was. Right. You know? Yo, Rob, I got a quick question. So so we were talking about record stores before we started with Jack's Music. Um you know, when I was getting into this stuff, you actually were the one that turned me on to it with the worst LP that I bought from uh, the Groove Spot when you had that place. Um, but at the time, those records were super hard to find, super scarce, they were, super yes, expensive. But, okay. but like, but were they that way even back then? I guess my question no. is like, where were you guys buying Mother Records? All right, and like, so because like, I know that they're all in, in, in small but, presses. But, but, but here's a weird thing, right? So, so Jacks music is an established record store in red bank new jersey jack's brother had a record store in uh in long branch on atlantic avenue called the turntable the turntable was managed by uh, treza who was the lead guitarist for the worst and uh ronnie acera so you could buy any of the mother records at the turntable the turntable was like the antithesis of, of Jax. Jax was kind of polished and, you know, established and, you know, Bruce Springsteen would come in there and uh, Bon Jovi or whoever the, the big swells in town would come in there. And, and the turntable was the exact opposite. It was like the gritty under, you know, if you were in fucking Doc Martens, it was the underside of the Doc Martin. <laughs> and there was a lot of, a lot of shen- shenanigans went on there, which I won't mention, but had a lot to do with drugs and, you know, there was a big drug scene at the shore back then. And, and it was and like the B side of the shrapnel combat love single. True. But, you know, combat, combat love and shrapnel. You know, I always think of shrapnel and, and being there and, you know, them opening up for the Ramones and probably uh, doing like 70 Ramone shows with them. How many? God knows how many numbers of Ramone shows. But they were always a, a power pop band. Yep. And it took me a long time to understand that, because when you're like in it, you don't think about it. Just like going to a Ramon show in 1980, you don't think about the Ramones being famous. They're just another fucking band. Right. You know, they're another right. band that's struggling. 
because they couldn't get any airplay. And that's all that Joey ever wanted was to be on the radio because they did a fucking half a dozen songs about playing on the radio. (laughs) Yes, they did. (laughs) It's true. No, you do word association. It's all radio, radio, radio. (laughs) Right, right, right. And AOR, America on Radio. And he's kind of like uh, actually was the guy who who created that that term almost because he wanted so badly to the point when they did the Phil Spector uh, uh, rock and roll radio, you know, it was about getting on the radio and they had good enough songs that should have been played every day. But, you know, uh, I don't, it was a fucked up scene because the, the mainstream music, you know, was anti punk yeah. and forget about hardcore. I mean, you never, you know, hardcore if you were lucky, is, hardcore maybe, is 10 steps further away down the line from punk. If, if punk was five blocks over hardcore is 10. Right. Maybe SO, SOU would play it. Maybe, Maybe, you know, uh, some midnight uh, uh, Brookdale um, DJ would play it, but it was you didn't hear it on the radio and you had to hear about it word of mouth. So Mother's putting out these records. But one of the things that Mother did was he never printed more than uh, 300 records. That was it. And, you know, I talked to him about it once and he he said that actually he never printed more than 250 and they would give him a... uh, 10% to 15% overrun. Mm-hmm. So it would be probably you'd end up with 280. Right. So when you look at like the chronic sick record, you know, which is this high you know, big number record. The reality is there's only less than 300 copies because yeah. then it goes, Oh, well that makes perfect sense. And a lot of those records were done that way. I mean, the West coast Avengers and some of those really tight uh, early germs records were, they were all short pressed. And they weren't, the fact they were short pressed was that, you know, mother was probably working out at Fort uh, Monmouth because they always had a day job. Yeah. And, you know, he was taking a quarter of his salary out of the month to press records and then go on the road and sell them. Mm-hmm. So you're at CBGB selling fucking, you know, uh, $3 records on a Tuesday night to an audience that's, you know, 75 people and 80, 50 of those people have 20 bucks in their pocket and the beer's a dollar and they're going to drink 15 <laughs> beers. So who's got money left over for fucking records? That's right. And that's the way you always had to look at it, you know. But I, I think that's really the lore is the fact that they were so short pressed. And the, so, so yeah, they're really, you know, you mentioned the, the, the spot um, where Trez was, was working and, and turntable. Jack, turntable. There weren't many other places locally to buy the records other than directly from Mother. Yeah, or or maybe you could go to Bleaker Bob's and they ha- would have two. You know. Yeah. You know, I don't know if you ever went to Bleaker Bob's when oh, yeah. they were open. Yeah. But you know, the, the joke was that uh, you know any Tuesday you'd see Danzig in there selling Bob records, <laughs> and and there was always that like cool cough was like you know, uh, bootleg to the point of being like, you got to be really careful when you buy an original copy. And the only reason it was bootlegged so heavily was because Danzig was doing the bootlegging. So Danzig <laughs> was a guy who would, who produced 300 records, but he would produce 300 records over and over and over and over again. Yeah. <laughs> so if you buy Cool Cough, you know, you need the rubber stamp on the front and the insert. Yeah. And if you yeah. don't have that, it's, it's, it's not that it's not legit and it's not a dancing re- soul record. It's just not a first press. It's not the first, right, it's not the, right. it's not the quote unquote real one. The other ones are him bootlegging himself. Um, right. And, and you could go in and he would be selling records. It was just so crazy because it'd be like every time we went by there, dancing was, you know, and if, I don't know if you've ever seen dancing, he's like four foot seven. Yeah. You know, <laughs> <laughs> Rob, how did you get in with those shrapnel guys? 
Because you wrote it uh, for them, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I did, you know, uh, I worked for them for about three years. Um, Dave and I were friends uh, through comic books, ironically. You know, one thing led to another. There was a, like a, a, a small scene. There's a couple other clubs. One was called Toad Hall. Mm-hmm. That's, that uh, later became uh, Chubby's, if you're a sure guy. Which like oh, all yeah. the Guidos, the Cuisine and Cuisinettes would go to like in the late 90s. But back in the uh, early 80s, that place was uh, pretty much taken over by us. And when I say by us, we had a, like a click of like probably about 30, you know, mutual friends, all interconnected in bands. You know, we would wear that. We would look like uh, like Junior Ramones fan club because <laughs> everybody we were in black you know biker jackets and have the fucking you know crazy ramon sort of style hair depending on yeah. what time period you know and no tattoos we never had tattoos because you know back then the guys who had tattoos were the uh rockabilly guys and we hated them can hate them <laughs> i did a show once uh opening up for uh the shrapnel opened up for the bloodless pharaohs which was the precursor to uh the uh, Rock Cats, so, uh, yeah, Rock Cats. Okay, the big rockabilly band. Oh yeah, okay. okay. The one guy's famous. Yeah. And and Billy Phantom was in the band, but they were such douchebags. We didn't get paid, and we got chased out by Dobermans and shotguns. <laughs> I never forget that. Was that in New York on Tribeca where uh, the Club Heat became? Maybe it was at the Club Heat. Yeah, and then it became Area. But oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I sort of got connected through that. You know, uh, Dave and I had been friends and, you know, he said, well, why don't you come over to uh, Daniel's? And Daniel and I actually knew each other from, of all places, Anchorage Beach Club. Mm-hmm. There's a famous day that, uh, well, not Anchorage, Surfrider. Anchorage was south of, of uh, Surfrider, but famous day that, that Johnny, uh, Joey Ramon comes to the beach and he <laughs> uses my surfboard. <laughs> Could he surf? Like, Nah, dude, Joey could barely walk. <laughs> I mean, I love the guy. He was great. My, right. my favorite Joey Ramon night is like, we're opening up for them in, at the Agora Ballroom in uh, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And he, his nose is so impacted by doing too much cocaine that he had to fucking like do it like a steam thing. It was like that scene out of uh, Crocodile Dundee where he takes the coke and puts it in the uh, hot water and do the steam. Yeah. He's, he's over this, over the... Uh, Stove, like trying to open up his sinuses. <laughs> Classic. I mean, yeah. you know, I, it's weird because I was always friends with uh, Arturo and, you know, some of the, the roadies from uh, the Ramones. And, and the Ramones themselves were very standoffish. You know, uh, Johnny and Joey, quote unquote, never talked to each other. But I, I've seen footage where actually they did. But they yeah. were never like sociable. And if you went to a party, you know, Joey would sit in the corner. Huh. And, and like right. nobody would talk to him. <laughs> that sounds right. But I, I always think of those guys as like, where would fucking music be without them? They're fucking right. lost. Sure. Well, well, I mean, you can certainly hear the influence uh, in Shrapnel. Yeah, yeah. But but then when you move past Shra- Shrapnel, uh, you're totally right. Combat Love is a is a power pop hit. It's it's great. Right. And the flip the flip side of that is hey. Mm-hmm. And it's all the Ramones doing the backgrounds. Oh, oh that's wow. cool. Yeah. It's a party. And, and you know, we, <laughs> yeah, we used to hang out with uh, the Rattlers, which was uh, Mitch Lee's band and, and uh, uh, Johnny, Johnny Quick, the drummer who dated um, Tina Weymouth's sister. So so we would hang out with them 
at the ear bar because they were like the biggest dealers of uh, Nepalese temple hash on in New York City. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a hash connection. I so, went so I went so deep. Here you go. And not not no serious OD, a minor OD. Okay. At, at the the Panoramic Hotel, which is famous in Eatontown, the Ramones were staying there, and they all came down and brought uh, Nepali Nepal uh, Temple hash, which was always heavily opiated, and I smoked too much, and my fucking lungs constricted. Jesus. Right, hanging out with the Ramones. Sounds like a good time. <laughs> so, so the, from there, the worst, the worst, end up being the first record that Mother does. Right. And the worst eventually, the worst eventually become the bad guys, and they actually put out a bad guys record, which is probably even harder to find than that first worst record. And I see people reprint these records all the time because the one thing that Mother didn't do, even though he has all the uh, the uh, acetates, he never reprints every anything, and I could never understand why. I was going to say, is there a reason for that? No, I don't know. I, you know, and, and Mother and I know each other well enough. He's a big comic book collector. He collects uh, X-rated comics. And if anybody knows me, I'm a, I'm a really big uh, purveyor and pusher of First Amendment rights. I'm good friends with uh, Mike Diana. You can Google his name, uh, Boiled Angel. Um, and, and Great documentary Mother, on him. Mother would always come over and buy fucking X-rated comic books forever i mean he's probably <laughs> most of his collection came from me but uh not to digress so so i could never quite understand his thinking i don't know if he just sort of got away from it because you do get to a certain age you know by 1984 i had to get sober clean and sober so i've been clean and sober since 84 and you know i i go out to shows mostly in hoboken when i live in hoboken but but not like you know every night during the 80, 81, 82, you know, when I'm sure. working as a bike messenger in New York City and roading and on the weekends, it's just a whole nother scene. But uh, I think maybe that mother just sort of got burnt out, even sure. though he could cash in. And I see now that, you know, the chronic sick has been uh, uh, re-released. Yeah. Uh, the worst has been released, re-released twice. I just saw yeah. it. There's a tyrant pressing, a hundred copy tyrant pressing yeah. in a red vinyl. Yeah. So the okay. records are out there on secondary stages, which is good because now the kids can listen to it, you know, because yeah. who can have fucking afford a twelve hundred dollar record? That's right. right. Well, and it's interesting. It makes me it makes me, you know, I think Pete and I both were young. We we being kids who grow up in punk rock at the Jersey Shore, you know. I was eighteen when I got the worst twelve inch. I think Pete was probably fifteen. Um and it made me curious to want to hear those other bands. And I think now it might even be a little easier because now kids everywhere. Because, I mean, I was listening to the Chronic Sick 12-inch the other day. 
and that's it's a crazy a great, record. It's a crazy, yeah. well, so you know, good. we should talk about it, but it's so good. It's like a, it, it's you know, a crazy thing classic, is, is you know? they, they become the X-Men. So they, they put out, a, you know, bands back then never lasted. They last <laughs> enough to maybe do a record and a half. And then they, they reform in something else. And, and the X-Men is like, why, why the fuck did you go in that direction? Like, because Chronic Sick is that great. But yeah. they were kids. You know, they were yeah. 17, 18, 19-year-old kids. So so the and thing to, 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 to... On that same level. Which one? Public disturbance. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then Fatal Rage, which was probably, you know, Mother Number 5. You know, that was Jacko's band. And if anybody who's listening has ever been to the Brighton, you know, in the last 30 years, Jacko ran the Brighton for 20 plus years easily. You know, he used to do the flyers. I would see Jacko like doing flyers. I'd be shipping something, you know, uh, FedEx ground or or coffee table to, to California. And Jacko would be fucking not even that long ago, 10 years ago, would be in like the FedEx you know, all night doing a flyer. Yeah. You'll be photocopies. Yeah. <laughs> not even copy and paste. Like oh, crazy shit. It. Yeah. Um, so chronic sick, you know, it's funny because to me it's a, it's a classic record, but the first song is there goes the neighborhood, which has some kind of, is it regrettable lyrics? It's a little bit, it's, it's, it's shocking to the ear of a 2020 listener. I'll say that. Yeah, um, yeah. was it that, that it comes it, off tongue in cheek but was but it all, all downhill from there yeah yeah that was yeah. the point yeah so you got to remember so it's 1980 yes and and you know ronald reagan's president right so yeah. we're fucked you know <laughs> we were like you know they talk about socialism and communism and they don't even fucking understand the words right. you know we were real socialist and communist and antifa you know, which has been around since 1947. You know, we were connected with them. You know, if you you took a subway uptown, downtown, you get hassled by like skinheads want you to convert. You know, that shit was all over the place. And the punk rock scene, you know, merging punk rock scene out of the like Ramones being the steadfast, you know, Queens, you know, it was really scattered. I mean, you see elements of that with, you know, the emerging bands, Token Entry, mm-hmm. Vision, um, Chromags, you know, you see like the skinhead elements sort of not quite embracing it, but they're there. Yeah. And, you know, if you went to a, a show, you know, certainly 83 and on that was always big scenes would be, you know, fucking shit would blow up. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's crazy to think that they started where they were and ended up the X-Men. Um, yeah. What, <laughs> what uh what was I gonna Pete, what, what were you, you had a question, I think. Yeah, so I mean like in my head, Rob, you know, all of the mother bands that I think of when I think of mother records, it all happened between like eighty two and eighty three. So yeah. in your estimation, like what was what happened like what was the was there a turning know. point for mother records? Like what what or what or that where? scene or that whole scene. Well, so, something yeah. so so yeah. so I got sober in eighty four and I leave the scene completely. I, I move uh you know, I moved up to the city okay. and you know, followed that whole fucking nonsense. You know, I was a VP at thirty for a corporation. So what the fuck do I know? But um <laughs> But so I, I, I think, you know, that the commercial success 
wasn't there. And Mother produces like 25, 30 records. I mean, there's right. a lot of records. So my, my favorite is, and I only owned one copy, and there was probably only five copies exist, was there was a uh, Scandinavian band called Rattus, R-A-T-T-U-S, yeah. that uh, was sort of like the, the uh, European version of the Ramones. And somehow Mother had gotten the rights to produce one of the records and, and had pressed it. But it was in the uh, uh, pressing house of, um, what's the guy, Strawberry Fields or Abbey Road. So, so Abbey yeah. Road's records in Freehold was pressing bootlegs at this pressing house. And the feds come in and they take everything, including all the Radis records, <laughs> except for five <laughs> copies. Yeah. And I owned one of those copies and I had that copy forever. It was never sleeved. Yep. And this guy from Texas was calling me once a fucking month. Yep. And I finally got off it when he offered me two grand. It was like, <laughs> okay. At that point. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and it, they never, they never sleeve that at all. I mean, a lot of times like the chronic sick, they would sleeve it themselves. They sit around and glue the fucking covers to, to white sleeves, you know, and that's the way that they did records. Very similar to what the factory did with, uh, in, uh, the UK. Yeah. With the, the pre new order band. What's what they called the first, uh, joy division. Division. Toy division, right, right. Very happy music. But um, <laughs> but so they, they produce these records and, and, you know, bands like Stism. And, you know, I don't even know half those bands because I wasn't in the scene. And it kind of like followed that no wave, new wave. Uh, I don't know. It's just it's not it was never my scene. No, Fucking, it's <laughs> lost in aggression. Twelve inch. It's. It is a record like it's I think it's Mother 29 and it's it's right. kind of more in that wave and it's weird and it's got some parts to it but you can tell uh, something has changed in terms of what they're putting out at that point you know right nobody's at the controls yes yes and the guy who's at the controls is in the band and thinks he's the smartest guy in the room <laughs> that's when you're fucked yeah I mean say what you want about Phil Spector he had a gun but he could produce records <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about fatal rage because i it's between that and chronic sick for my favorite of the mother records yeah i don't know anything about it Jacko was a poet. Um, uh, the funniest thing about me and Jacko is that we, I, I was dating this girl, Sandy, and he ended up with her. Oh. So that's my main connection with Jacko. And I remember Jacko when he was skinny. So we would go down to like the hot dog house where they practice there all the time. And, you know, they would play. And I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm what I was very good friends with Treza until he fucked some, one of my friends over pretty crazily, you know, yeah. Treza had, Reemerged after Treza went to prison for like uh, five years. I think he had three years and then he got caught like doing heroin in prison and got another year. 
Oh boy. Great stuff. You know? Yeah. But, uh, so he had gotten out of prison when I had the store was still running. So it's about 20 years ago. And he formed a band called, uh, heavy liquid. They were pretty good. I don't yeah, they weren't bad. I, rem- I did see them. I remember them. Yeah, they were sort of had that Ashton uh, Stooges kind of vibe. Sure. And I love that music. You know, a lot of it was faking. He faked a lot. But so I, I always liked the worst. You know, we would go over to uh, Trez's house and, and, and watch them practice because he lived down the block from Daniel. And again, we were sort of like, you know, we weren't brother bands, but we were always hung out together. Mm-hmm. Cause that was the click. I mean, when you, you're in red bank in 1980 and punk rock still relatively, uh, invading suburbia it hasn't quite, yeah. you know, those movies haven't been made yet. Suburbia hasn't been made. <laughs> so it probably predates it by three or four years. And, 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 you know, who are you going to hang out with? You hang out with the guys, you know, you eat onions and beat each other up. That's right. like Saturday night in red bank. <laughs> But, uh, you know, Fatal Rage is great. I, I think, you know, if the scene had been bigger and, and, and there had been more of a, of a light, you know, back then, again, you played the fast lane. If you were lucky, you know, um, you got to open up for Iggy Pop. Mm. You know, Shrapnel opened up for Iggy Pop and the band in between was Blue Angel. Blue Angel was Cindy Lauper's first band. So, oh, wow. so the dressing rooms at the fucking... <laughs> dressing rooms at the fast lane had like a foot gap at the top and you could actually look into the other other uh oh. the, the other dressing room and, and cindy lopper's doing her warm-ups and we're going like what the fuck is that and we're all like tippy toes looking down at cindy lopper and she turns around and starts screaming at us it was like you know four of us or five of us we must have looked like meerkats you know <laughs> <laughs> that was one of my fa- my most favorite nights in fucking Asbury Park because fucking Iggy Pop did China Girl and just all this fucking Iggy Pop's a fucking genius. Say what you want, fucking no. genius, fucking energy driven. So so what so, happens? Mother Records. So, yes. so they fucking ET compresses. Maybe he ended up at the point where he's producing this shit, and I'll call it shit. I mean, because those last five records are shit. He would take those records to the flea market 10 years ago, try to sell them for $5 a piece and go home with 40 of each. So, I mean, you know, right. we're talking shit. Yeah. And, and yeah, maybe that's yeah. what was undid did the, the, the truck that, you right. know, he lost all direction, which happens. You grow old, you know, what the fuck? You know, you can't stay young forever. Yeah. And, um, and I, I think about it, too, because he's so it was so locally focused that what happens if, if the bands locally aren't doing shit, you know, if, right. if, if, you, right. if, you know, you're trying to stay around, still, still do bands, but then you look around and go, Oh, none of this right. is very well, chronic, good. Chronic sick isn't playing rat Skeller in Boston. Right. You know, maybe the worst played there once or twice. Fucking shrapnel played there like once a month and opened up for the REM at fucking rat Skeller. We sat in the back dressing room with REM drinking. And those guys were fucking like, I think it was the first tour they ever, ever literally ever went on. I mean, uh, Michael Stipe had a full head of hair. <laughs> literally. Yeah. Had no idea who they were. They've never heard of them. They fucking, they were the headliners. So they, they had none of their songs or any of their hit songs. You know, they kind of went that AR route and became yeah. famous. And my first wife loved them. I had to go take her to the same three or four times. But, uh, so, so know. with, with the shore core scene and, and all that, 
at the kind of at the same time, I guess there's there's some punk stuff going on in North Jersey with the the buy our records world, whether it's AOD or was buy our Bedlam. records from North Jersey. Yeah, no. were they really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's the guys uh, like uh, not Morris County, where is it? right? Yeah, so right, so not not totally, but you know, was there any crossover there with any of those bands, the Bedlams oh, sure. or? Okay, yeah, I would think they would come down and play. Yeah. Now, for full, uh, you know, I, I was pretty well, like, wasted all the time. So I've got, like, pretty good blackout remembrance days. <laughs> yes, of, yes. Like, you know, like, fucking going to a concert and thinking I'm still there today and that sooner or later I'm going to wake up and I'll be, like, 21 again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there was a lot of, like, you know, we did drugs as soup or lunch. <laughs> You know, and, and that's one of the reasons why I left the shore, because it was very destructive. And you saw that afterwards. The aftermath was crazy. I mean, you know, Nikki Cavana died and, you know, Nikki was in uh, Tyrant. It's Phil Cavana's older brother. He was like one of my better friends. And it just all this shit happened. You know, you don't think about that today because uh, your music today is even if you're a young punk rocker, you've got all these like fucking boxes that you live within. You know, and everybody's pointing at you like, don't do drugs, you know, and shit. Nobody did that. You know, back in like 1980, you could still drink when you're 18. Right. So. It That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's very different from the shore core that we grew up with, I think. Right. Right. And Which I, was probably all straight edge. Yeah. You know, the whole straight edge movement didn't even start until. Uh, <laughs> very different minor thing. Threat. Minor Threats first record is probably 83, right? 82, 83. That's right. True. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. so they're the first real straight edge band. You know, I've been straight edge ex except for caffeine for since 84. You know? Yeah. Right. Hardcore awesome. vegan vegetarian. <laughs> oh, Were there yeah. any like, there you, go. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Were there any like outlier bands? I mean, I'm sure there were, but like within the mother scene or like just outside of the mother scene, like it seems like it was well, somewhat of a close knit. band was, was, was actually not from the shore. They were from uh, the city. They were actually a Queens band called the Corpsicles. If you ever get a chance, it's very <laughs> unknown. Put out one record. Another guy was a casualty of uh, drug abuse. Uh, Bobby was the, the lead uh, singer and guitarist in that band. But they put one record out. It's phenomenal. It's really great. Straight ahead shit. Okay. But there wasn't like, you know, the punk scene wasn't pushed. It was there. Mother was right. there. Um, the, the five or ten punk rock bands that were local were there. Um, and beyond that, you know, it's all, you know, we sort of had blinders on in some respects, you know, we're tunnel kids. I don't even think they use right. that term anymore. So sure. we would go into the city and we get abused for being tunnel kids, but <laughs> we're from the shore, you know, it's like, you know, if you were in Queens, you were tunnel kids, but they would never call them tunnel kids because they were in New York. It's right. all the same. <laughs> right. It really right. is. Yeah. There's parts of Queens that are further from New York City than right. uh, than than and you couldn't, you know, we you try finding an apartment, you know, when you know, like most of us didn't even have jobs. I mean, I worked as a bike messenger. I think you know, I would probably make less than two hundred a week back then. You know, try finding an apartment. You have ten people in a fucking you know, it's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy, crazy scenes. So you kinda you you kinda disappear eighty three, eighty four for your own good. Yeah. Shrapnel puts out an LP in 84. Horrible. It's really Horrible bad. Thing. It's really bad. It's like <laughs> it's like one of the worst records that you know, if you go to a flea market and there's dollar records, 
Yeah. That's the one you don't buy. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I made the mistake as and a I young person. Exactly what, yeah. So, so here's, here's what happens to shrapnel, right? Shrapnel gets uh, new management. And, and, and the new management is Michael Lago. Now, Michael mm-hmm. Lago is a really famous guy in the history of music. He's maybe one of the most important characters, nice guy, decent guy. Um, he's a guy who signs uh, Metallica to Elektra from, yeah. from Megaforce and gets points in their first three records and becomes a multimillionaire because of it. But, you know, Shrapnel was a power pop band yep. with, with amazing talent. Even Boat and, and Danny Clayton on drums, amazing talent. But that world moved. Yep. And, and you can't, you know, that's sweet sounding, you know, uh, power pop that was really popular in 81 becomes less popular in 84. I mean, they're going more towards no wave and yep. eventually new wave and, you know, uh, heart of glass and shit like that. That's where right. the world's going. Um, so I, I think that the record's overproduced for one. Yes. And, and the overproducing kills it, but the whole genre is dead. I mean, the genre is dead. There's no, the romantics are done, you know, and they would probably would have been one of the leading edge of that uh, power pop movement. And a lot of people don't even see it. You know, you had Boys Life out of Boston, you had the Vectors. Now the Vectors are an interesting band. They become a uh, missing foundation. That mm-hmm. if, you, if you kids don't know who missing foundation are, Look them up. I was really good friends with Peter Missing and and uh, Jeff Nagel was the lead guitarist in Missing Foundation. Yeah. And, and in New York, when I moved up there, I still you know had some connections and I was would go out occasionally. I moved into Hoboken and lived a half a block from uh, from Maxwell, so I got to see um, uh, what's a band from Nirvana play at Maxwell's, you know, oh, wow. shit like that, you know, yeah. like fucking you know uh, Dinosaur Junior. All, all that whole time period. That's where I would go. The problem there was, of course, I quit smoking the same day that I quit drinking and doing drugs. And uh, Maxwell's was notorious for being a very small room where you could smoke with no ventilation. Right. Yeah. So it got to the tough. point where you couldn't, your eyes would water and you couldn't see oh. the stage. It's yeah. crazy. <laughs> yeah, I'm good on that. <laughs> yeah. What is there? Is there a reason that Shrapnel didn't record more than they did? Because it seems like they were super active, but they'd only have you know a few records. They have those. They have those two singles, and and I don't know if they had other music be out no. outside of those two singles. I, I'm pretty sure that I'm sure there's a lot of board music out there, but you know Dan Rabinowitz was probably one of the literally one of the smartest people I know. Period. I'm still friends with Dan. He's been playing uh, with uh, the, the Dictators. He played oh. out on their last tour. Okay. But, you know, he still produces. He still gets points on all these records. He's got a massive record collection. He he invited me over to, to look at his records and ask some advice of what I thought he should do. Hey, 
So unfortunately, at this point in the interview, Rob's phone cut out. Um, he was in his storage space, and I get the I guess the connection there was pretty poor. So we talked to him afterwards and agreed that rather than continuing the interview, we would just get a part two lined up for a few weeks from now. So um, that's the plan. We're going to talk to Rob again at some point and go deeper into Mother Records, but also the Jersey Shore scene of the early 80s. So hope you enjoyed the interview. Thanks again to Rob for coming on the podcast, and we'll see you next week.